Today we begin what will be a sort of periodic series. We've spent a great deal of time rediscovering America's first libertarian movement, vulgarly called Locofocoism. And now, as we follow the lives of the last Locofocos through to the end, we should pause from time to time to take stock and find meaning in what they did. Therefore, we're going to start an investigation of a wide array of profiles in locodom. We will choose several individuals from the movement whose biographies represent the many different types and styles of Locofoco. And first up, we have Fernando Wood, New York City's wartime mayor, a Locofoco going back to the mid-1830s, and the consummate political double-dealer. To see what we can make of Wood and his influence on the Locofoco movement, I've invited PhD candidate Nicholas Mosvick on the show. Mosvick is writing a dissertation on civil liberties during the Civil War at the University of Mississippi, and he is one of the very few experts on Fernando Wood. Welcome to Liberty Chronicles, a project of libertarianism.org. I'm Anthony Comegna. Okay, so Nicholas, let's start off talking about Fernando Wood's very, very early life. Is there anything relevant from his upbringing, his childhood, his days as a young man uh, that went into informing his very long and influential political career? Uh, yes, well, there's probably two things that stand out. And one is that his family background was that of Quakers. Um, so his first um, family members to come over to the United States came over in 1650 from Wales. And uh, his father, in fact, was kicked out of the Quakers for being too militant. Uh, he also had a grandfather who um, had his own disputes with the Quakers during the Revolutionary War. So uh, Wood has background as a Quaker, and it's believed that makes him somewhat peaceful and calm as a politician. Uh, the other important thing is that very early on, um, just uh, is uh, around 20 years old, he's already an entrepreneur, is a cigar maker running a factory in Richmond. Um, so he has this background as an entrepreneur that's going to be very important because uh, Wood will be a rising political figure is a very young man um, who has not forgotten his background as an entrepreneur. How did he end up as a <laughs> a cigar manufacturer in Richmond? How how what, did he manage to become a, a young entrepreneur like that without uh, without a start from his family? Uh, it's unclear to me. Uh, the uh, the background is a uh, a uh, running a factory in Richmond at twenty um, comes from a biography that was made of Fernando Wood while he was actually mayor, um, and that. Uh, biography, uh, that official biography, um, does not actually specify. So in some ways, I think um, his rise as an entrepreneur is sort of part of his political myth um, that sells him as a, um, uh, a working class uh, politician, right? So this, um, as we'll talk about, uh, what is really an important part of the early Tammany Hall politics. Right. Um, so his ability, as we'll talk about later, early in his political career to um, connect to working uh, New Yorkers is an important part of his political appeal. 
Um, but I'm not sure uh, how it is he ends up in Richmond because very soon after that, he's back in New York City is a uh, cigar maker. Hmm. Now, see, that's very interesting to me. I mean, like so many of these other figures, a lot of the details of his life, especially early on, are very spotty. And it's it's hard to get a firm grasp on what, you know, a young man on the make and on the move uh, is is dealing with day to day, day, to day uh, or or exactly what his motivations might be, too. But, you know, he does end up getting caught up in the swirls of locofocoism in the mid-1830s. Uh, and I, I wondered if you could give us a, an idea of what, what is his philosophy as he first starts to get involved in politics? Um, and, you know, what are the issues that are really concerning to him? Uh, well, I think it's the issues that stand out, right? Um, the 1830s are a time of um, a lot of economic, um, uh, uh, not, uh, not just panic, right, but uh, some very important economic events, right? So we have the Panic of 1837, um, which is a really a seminal event uh, in the 19th century. Uh, this comes um, on the tale of Andrew Jackson's time as president um, and his uh, famous uh, species circular, right? So his um, push for hard money, right? And so there's a reaction uh, to this this panic um, that for Wood and uh, other Democrats who are with uh, Tammany Hall uh, to shift them to more uh, conservative views, right? Um, and that's and that has to do with who they necessarily blame for these economic events, right? Uh, and really going back to the panic of 1819. Uh, the conservative reaction is to blame um, the larger uh, financial order uh, for these economic panics. Now, as you said, he uh, <clears throat> he's sort of shifted his views during the Panic of 1837, as did a lot of other Democrats. Now, I feel just permit me a sort of diatribe here about the ins and outs of early locofoco politics. Wood was somebody who who was uh, it, to in my research, at least, he first shows up on Tammany Hall's Young Men's uh, General Committee, which is one of the steering committees to nominate candidates and to drive Tammany Hall policy. Uh, but it's reserved for young activists, young Democrats. Um, <clears throat> and then there's the Old Men's Committee, which is sort of your, supposed to be your seasoned citizens uh, who are, are well-versed in how Tammany works. And Wood gets recruited to the Young Men's Committee uh, because he has been reading William Leggett and he's been involving himself somewhat in the radical locofoco politics of the day. But he's still seen by Tammany Hall as a conservative and they think they can get him on the committee as a, a conservative force within the, the young men's orbit and everybody knew that it was the young men who were represented by locofocoism, right? So you get the, the, the right young men on the young men's committee and the conservatives can still uh, take the, the wind out of locofoco sales. But then the flower riot changes things. Um, how would you say Wood is a radical? Uh, well, my, my knowledge of Wood tends to be a little later in his career. But what I would say uh, his overall career suggests is that 
his consistent radicalism has to do with sort of, um, as you suggested in some ways, bridging this gap between uh, this local focal tendency towards what we would now call libertarianism and these older conservative values. And uh, that really goes back to his perspective as a young man and entrepreneur, right? His um, ability to connect with working people and again, to uh, really bridge this divide, right? In some, in some ways, what makes Wood uh, radical um, is his ability to kind of, uh, you know, uh, jump ship politically at times, right? To take these um, these views that are, are somewhat surprising. So as we'll talk about uh, during the Civil War, uh, that's how Wood really shifts from someone known uh, as con uh, more conservative to um, a someone known as a peace democrat. Just I, I suppose just to to finish up the the brief story of his early politics in New York City. He was he was that peace democrat. His position on the the Young Men's Committee was let's make peace between the the Democratic Party of Van Buren and this new thing the Equal Rights Party, the sort of protest party among the loco focos, right? So like especially yeah. for me there's there's Fernando Wood on the Young Men's Committee and then there's someone like Levi Slam who has been a character recurring on the show. Um Levi Slam is is the Equal Rights Party official responsible for calling meetings and he, and he refuses to call meetings because he wants Locofocos to make joint nominations with Tammany, meaning he wants them to work with people like Wood and make peace with the Democratic Party. So he refuses to call meetings and the Equal Rights Party dies and they do merge back with, with Tammany Hall, thanks in part to people like Wood playing that role of, of peace Democrat. And you know his his biographer um, Joel Mush, or Jerome Muscat says that uh, locofocoism was both an ideological imperative and a useful political expedient to him. I think that's a good way to describe his career because that is going to make sense of how uh, Wood acts both as mayor and then later is a uh, peace democrat in the Civil War who will find himself uh, elected to Congress. Uh, in 1863, um, really that driving dynamic of pushing both for peace, um, maintaining ideological commitments, especially to um, strict constructionism and limited constitutional powers for the federal government, um, but also this ability to simultaneously uh, maintain uh, his political um, uh, political edge or his, uh, uh, his, his really ability to um, keep his own political dynamic together. Um, that will very much remain true during the Civil War where uh, his um, uh, so-called Mozart Hall Democrats uh, will maintain power at least uh, in the middle of the Civil War. Now, what, what can you tell us that's especially important about his career in between uh, these early days of locofocoism and the Civil War, because I think I think most people who ever have heard of him probably heard about him as the the mayor of New York City who wanted the city to secede from the Union during the war. But there's yeah. there's surely yeah. a lot to fill in in between there. Um, so what what about his time? I mean, he he had a brief stint in Congress um, in the early 1840s, 
as I understand it, it's it's at least a little bit unclear whether he should be classified as a Van Buren man or a Calhoun man. Um, what's your point of view? Um, yeah, well, and I think my reaction to that is the reason is a, it, it kind of goes back to what we were just talking about, right? This dynamic that Mushkat talks about, this uh, kind of ability to step between ideological commitments and political commitments. And he's only in Congress for one term. Um, and you do see him take some of these uh, more unique and radical positions, right? Um, so for instance, uh, he gives a uh, lengthy speech in 1841, known as the fiscal speech, uh, advocating against the bank, right? And so uh, being against the bank uh, nominally makes him a Van Buren man, right? Uh, but he also uh, adds, you know, um, that um, he believes in the falsity of the, uh, he believes that the fig, Whig prophets, I'm sorry, uh, the false Whig prophets are pushing their ability to support this independent treasury so, through what he calls magic, right? So his attack on uh, sort of the business class in the mercantile class of New York. Once, once again, this really goes back to his, uh, his early days, but in some ways uh, that can show him is a Van Buren man, right? Uh, and he's also uh, makes a famous speech in 1843 against the tariff. Uh, so once again, uh, you know, in some ways, I think this can kind of show him to be a Van Buren man uh, where he talks about uh, the need to avoid any protectionism uh, and to keep only the reward of honest industry uh, and that he was a favor in favor of non-interference, right? So again, tariffs and the banks are both examples of the sort of corruption uh, that would have been reflective of the Van Buren and then the Jacksonian perspective, right? Uh, sort of the spirit of the age, right? Um, uh, but he also talks in that speech about uh, Europe in this kind of global spirit of the age pushing towards free trade. Um, and I don't know if that makes him stand out in some ways um, uh, against the Van Burenites, but um, he kind of is taking this to the next step, right? So it's not just that uh, tariffs um, are corrupt uh, and protectionism, right? But they also go against the uh, spirit of the age in um, uh, towards free trade, right? Yeah, he does sort of, you know, I'm glad you brought up that phrase as sort of spirit of the age because he does kind of strike me also as a young American. Uh, I don't I, I don't know that I've, I mean, he's too much of a politician for many historians to, to classify him with a literary movement, um, but he does seem to, ha to be very touched by that idea of manifest destiny and some sort of glorious future that Americans are fulfilling based on uh, loco foco abstract principles, um, but he, but yet he's somebody with with his nose to the ground in politics, and he's able to to flit between camps um, and pursue that vision in sort of a a practical way uh, that oftentimes the more agitating loco focos didn't really have patience for. Um, yeah, and I, I find it interesting that. Some, even the even the big politicians like Van Buren or Calhoun didn't didn't have patience for that, uh, and I think they didn't have patience for his for his uh, 
position as an ideologue, you know, his sort of romanticism about the American future. They were too pragmatic and, and politically minded. Um, but Wood, you know, he... Then that's some ways... Go ahead. Uh, uh, sorry. Then in some ways that reflects on his age, right? I mean, this, this goes, this really connects to your description of him uh, as a young man. And they, in the 1840s, that's very true, right? We're talking about Wood uh, in uh, his early 30s, maybe, right? And um, those he's dealing with, uh, uh, the Van Buren brothers in Calhoun, are much older, right? Uh, Calhoun will die in 1850. Um, Van Buren, by this point, is in his 60s, right? Um, so we're talking about a generational divide as well, right? Yeah, and he, 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 like I said, he tries to, again, play sort of a peace Democrat, and he... He poses to the Calhoun people as their ally uh, and he goes to secret strategy sessions of the Calhounites in the – throughout the 1840s, especially leading up to I think the 1844 um, nomination and he gives the Cal Calhoun people advice about uh, wrangling delegates and meanwhile, he's reporting to Van Buren everything about the Calhoun people's movements, you know. And the Van Buren people see this as the worst kind of double dealing, which they do themselves all the time, but they don't like it when they when you know they can't trust somebody. So they have no respect for for Wood. They don't like him. Um, and then Calhoun gets him a patronage job, and Wood stays neutral in the free soil election of 1848. Right. So again, he's not an agitator. Um, he might be an ideologue. But he's not an agitator. Yeah, and that's a that's an important distinction, right? Because again, that's the kind of thing that uh, is shot through his political career is that he has these these obvious ideological commitments, but he's really able to uh, keep this delicate political balance that, in some ways, uh, is really impressive, right? So take us take us through uh, his time as mayor and leading into the Civil War. What's important to note about him, and how, how does he ultimately end up the mayor who wants New York to secede? Well, I think uh, one thing that stands out that gives us a little bit of insight into Wood as mayor, uh, for one, is that uh, Wood runs for mayor in sort of a, uh, a fascinating. Um, uh, time in American politics, right? So he runs against a know-nothing candidate and a reform candidate, right? Uh, so the Whig candidate actually barely gets any votes in this election, right? But it's a four-way election, really. In some ways, Americans might think of not only the 1856 election, but of course, the 1860 election as being one of these uh, heavily contested uh, elections because no one got a clear majority, right? So Wood actually wins uh, the mayorship um, with only around a third of the vote, right? Um, so he gets in, and in his inaugural address in 1855, uh, I think this stands out to me. He he talks about his faithful adherence to the framers of the Constitution and the principle of republicanism, uh, that no power should be delegated which can be exercised by the people themselves. So he has this really important commitment to popular uh, sovereignty. Uh, and then he immediately uh, puts himself into uh, a political battle. Um, Wood believes that 
is mayor, he should be head of the police department, right? Uh, he complains that the chief of police is made too independent. Uh, and he also complains that the uh, New York City Council uh, has too much control over his decision-making power, right? He believes that the mayor should basically be like a president, right? He should have removal power of any officers underneath him, and that basically the police should be like his army, right? They should be his army force, right? So he's making sort of this uh, play for power, and at the same time, the same um, uh, inaugural address, he's also pushing for things like reducing large expenditures for public schools, right? So again, he he shows um, his character as a conservative, but he's also pushing for more power. Um, and he's also talking at length about corruption, right? One more example we might talk about uh, during his time as mayor is um, both that he, uh, while he runs against a know-nothing uh, candidate, uh, he still shows himself to be uh, critical of immigrants. Uh, he says, uh, quote, immigration, emigration is not detrimental as a whole. Among them are honest, industrious, and thrifty people whose presence here may, may be called a blessing to this country, but it is to that uh, proportion to which I allude, like the Belgians, have been sent out of their country as either paupers or criminals, right? So he's just suspicious of, uh, in particular, Belgians um, who might come into the city, right? Uh, so he really comes in and he has this concern uh, that's rather consistent as, as mayor with crime, right? Um, uh, so he, one of his real major goals is uh, trying to empower himself as mayor to get rid of crime in New York City. Now, that quote is particularly interesting to me. Not not just because it sounds plucked out of our own day, um, although I don't, I hardly think Belgium would be on the receiving end of criticism today. Uh, <laughs> I, I've spent time uh, around yeah, Belgians, right. and they're they're fine people. Uh, at least they are now. Um, but you know, it it leaps out to me because he very much is a racist. He is a northern racist who has lots of awful things to say about uh, African Americans, free and enslaved. He's very um, callous toward their interests uh, and he definitely is a member, at least as far as I can tell, of the sort of doe-face wing of the Democratic Party as it relates to slavery and race relations. Uh, but it is obviously interesting to see him criticizing white immigration too. What do we make yes. of that? Yeah. Uh, I think what we make of that is that part of what informs his view as a politician is simply his suspicion of outsiders. Um, that in the 19th century, uh, Wood is amongst those conservatives um, who are looking for sort of a, uh, a pure uh, form of American republicanism and a more American moral character. Um, if we go back to his time as a young man, uh, not only do we think about him as an entrepreneur, we're talking about uh, sort of his commitment to a form of manifest destiny, right? Um, but the question for that, uh, when we think of manifest destiny as historians, uh, is of course for who, right? 
and Wood has to answer that question, and he gives, um, I think, uh, a recognizable 19th century conservative answer to that question, which is uh, good um, Republican citizens who are likely white Protestants, right? Um, so he's not a know-nothing, right? Uh, but he still probably shares some of that suspicion uh, with outsiders, right? Those who can be trusted to be committed uh, to both this political project, but also this moral project, right? Now, he's, a, he's the firmest of Democrats all the way through the Civil War and Reconstruction period. Uh, so what... What exactly is – tell tell us just about the clash between him and the Lincoln administration uh, while he is mayor of New York City during the war. Well, uh, so Fernando Wood, uh, he not only clashes uh, with the Lincoln administration uh, as mayor, but uh, even once he's out and he'll be running for uh, Congress, really shot throughout the war, uh, he's clashing with Lincoln. Um, and really, in that, in some sense, uh, Wood makes himself uh, a leader of these New York politicians, these Democrats, who are opposing Lincoln. Um, and it really starts in the first year of the war, right? Um, for instance, as you suggested, uh, Wood is uh, sympathetic to the South. He's sympathetic to secession, right? Um, and that's, in some ways, a first no-no. Uh, uh, it's a first schism, right? Because uh, there will be these Democrats who will become uh, referred to as uh, war Democrats, right? Something that Fernando would, would have sneered at, right? Uh, but the idea being that uh, they're very much committed to uh, fighting the Confederacy and winning this war, right? They have no qualms about uh, secession. They believe what's happened is wrong, right? So from the get-go, uh, Wood is placing himself in opposition. Um, and then shortly after the war starts, uh, Lincoln uh, and the Republicans start wartime policies that Wood and his brethren believe are unconstitutional and wrong, right? Including uh, the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus and, of course, uh, the arrest of uh, some Democrats and, in particular, Democratic newspaper editors, right? So they basically believe. Uh, that Lincoln and the Republicans uh, are using the war and their increased powers to go after their political opponents. Uh, and in some ways, we can see uh, that this pushes Wood over time towards becoming more radical, right? He doesn't start the war as a peace Democrat, but somehow by 1863, uh, he's really talking about uh, pushing for peace with the Confederacy. Now, what? So then, how does that lead us to New York City should be a, a free trade, free state? That's a leap that it uh, seems well, like you know the vast majority of Americans would not have been making. So, what is it about you know his his thinking that says this is the way to to go? Uh, I think. Um, I believe that it's really a combination, uh, right? For one, I think Wood very much sees himself um, as a powerful figure, and he's not incorrect in that, right? He has uh, significant backing. Um, but he also, I think, understands that even if 
there is sort of this war going on between Mozart Hall, uh, his supporters, and Tammany Hall, um, that New York Democrats broadly don't support the Lincoln administration, right? There's this sort of the sense that, um, well, of course we could do this because uh, here in New York, uh, not only are there uh, draft riots, but really throughout uh, the war uh, in 1863 in particular, um, there's really a lot of opposition to uh, the Lincoln war policies amongst uh, New Yorkers and especially New York Democrats. Uh, so there's a sense that uh, it's at least possible. And of course, Wood already ideologically believes that secession uh, isn't wrong. Um, and I think lastly, um, there's this sense, especially by 1863, uh, that there are enough uh, Democrats who are pushing for peace elsewhere in the North uh, that if New York City leaves, other cities might go too, right? Or at least other areas of the North, right? Um, you know, we might recall that this is around the time that uh, Clement Vallingham, uh, the representative from Ohio, uh, has been arrested by the Lincoln administration uh, for speaking out against uh, their war policies, and he'll be shortly after sent to the South, right? Um, and Lindingham is another major peace Democrat, right? So this this sort of uh, linking of arms, right? Kind of the sense that they have as much clout as they're going to have at that time uh, to be able to push for their policies. It will be quite some time before we catch up to Reconstruction on the show, but we will get there. Needless to say, New York City never successfully secedes. Uh, boy, it would have been nice. But nonetheless, uh, Wood is an important figure moving forward in the Democratic Party, um, bringing again these old factions back together uh, after the war and trying to reunite what used to be this old big locofoco coalition. So, you know, I sort of see people like like Wood as the the free trade Democrats who who would, you know, ignore or give up any kind of racial equality issues. They don't care about that. They care mostly about free trade, limited government. And then there's the other locofocos, people like William Cullen Bryant or John Bigelow who took over for William Leggett at the Evening Post. They went with the Republican Party because, you know, the inequalities uh, related to race and slavery were so much more important to them, at least momentarily, than than free trade. Um, but after the war and after abolition, somebody like Wood still being around in the Democratic Party serves again as a vehicle to bring these factions back together and to to heal the wounds opened by slavery politics, to you know the the. Uh, more radical, egalitarian locofocos, they can say, oh, well, we accomplished abolition. We got our main goals and we smashed the slaveholders' monopoly. So now we can come back to the Democratic Party and fight against the money power, the banks, and all that stuff again. Um, and, and Wood is, again, this, this conduit back to some sort of democratic consensus. What do we make of this person in the end? What, what impact did he have on the libertarian movement of his day? Um, you know, I think what we make of him is, uh, part of it is what you what you just alluded to, right? Is that um, after the war, it's, um, it says a lot about um, 
the politics of the day that there's also this sort of this desire to uh, go back to the way things were, right? So he starts off as a young man. We talk about him uh, kind of representing some of these new ideals in the 1840s, kind of pushing for uh, free trade globally and uh, these more libertarian local focal positions. Um, and by the late 1860s, um, that's sort of wanting to return to a world that doesn't really quite exist anymore, right? But um, because uh, Fernando Wood also was a racist who uh, supported slavery, uh, it was far easier to really attach himself back to some of those free trade positions. Uh, so I think what this tells us um, is the degree to which uh, 19th century political history and the local FOCO and early libertarian movements uh, are complicated narratives, right? Uh, so at once, they inform us about these radical movements uh, that may have pushed Americans to support um, positions that ultimately would be uh, for the better, uh, support of free trade for one. Uh, but these were also um, personally uh, people uh, who weren't uh, necessarily attached to the same moral commitments we have now, right? They're um, not only racist, right? But uh, suspicious of outsiders, right? Their their idea of community, their idea of who really is involved, um, both in this democratic project and this free trade project, is also inherently limited. Uh, and the Civil War, in some ways, doesn't change that for somebody like Fernando Wood, right? And, but he maintains power after the war precisely because for a lot of Americans, uh, once the war is open, uh, once the war is over, um, they are hoping to heal the wounds and sort of uh, return to the world that they knew, right? Uh, and once again, uh, I think part of that story is to know that once we get to Reconstruction, and we talk about Reconstruction, uh, that really isn't something that could happen, right? It's a, it's a forlorn hope. Yeah, yeah. And uh, just like eventually as people like Wood die, Really, the whole the the whole concept of locofocoism dies with them, and as I've alluded to a little bit before, people like Benjamin Tucker are left behind to sort of gather the pieces back together, and they they have to adopt this new word, this strange European import, libertarian. Uh, you know, I think the last thing I would uh, I would add because I didn't really talk enough about it during the Civil War, uh, which is that um, this sort of complicated narrative, this complicated person that Wood is, um, you know, is a peace Democrat who is sympathetic to the South. Um, but we can also understand him, as you've mentioned, as someone really being committed to peace throughout, uh, right? And the sense that uh, someone would want to uh, avoid the increasing and awful violence of the Civil War is something we should uh, try our best to understand, right? Not because uh, we're looking to uh, question the war or its outcome, outcome itself, uh, but trying to understand why uh, a position like that would be rational in 1863, uh, when the war was really uh, starting to reach the heights of its bloodshed, right? Um, uh, and I think that's that's important, right, to understand that there's there's a moment in which a movement for peace has some real legitimate prospects because uh, the war 
um, has become uh, such a bloody, awful mess. Nicholas Mosvick is a PhD candidate in American history at the University of Mississippi, where his research focuses on the constitutional arguments over conscription during the Civil War. He has a JDMA from the University of Virginia School of Law's Legal History Program, and he has worked for the Cato Institute as a legal associate in the Center for Constitutional Studies. Liberty Chronicles is a project of libertarianism.org. It is produced by Tess Terrible. If you've enjoyed this episode of Liberty Chronicles, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. For more information on Liberty Chronicles, visit libertarianism.org.